Welcome to episode 200 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm climate and energy journalist Markham Hislop. Today, I'm going to be talking to Truzar Doherty, who is an assistant professor in sustainability management at the Uni University of York in UK, but he's a good Canadian boy. And he works in the field of climate, finance, energy, and I'm going to talk to him about his co-authored paper, A Voice for Change, Capital Markets as a Key Leverage Point in Canada's Fossil Fuel Industry. So welcome to the interview, Truzar. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. I'm looking forward to it. Well, this is a, uh, this is a, 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 how to get oil and gas companies in particular, because when we're talking about fossil fuel, we're not talking about coal as much anymore. The Canadian uh, power sector has almost completely uh, uh, phased out coal power plants and the Canadian coal industry, we don't export as much as we used to. So we're really talking about oil and gas. Uh, companies here. Uh, I'm writing a column about uh, the incumbency dilemma for oil and gas companies. How do you get these guys, the the, the executive teams, the CEOs, the the board, and and investors to start grappling with the the issue of the energy transition and declining demand for you know peak oil demand is going to come probably later this decade at the global level. Uh, these companies are going to be facing demand destruction in the early 2030s, and they have to, they should be thinking now about developing low carbon business models. They're not. And particularly in Canada, we've seen them retrench Suncor, which was the, did more work in the energy transition than any other Canadian oil and gas company. You know, a couple of weeks ago, the, the, the CEO, um, Rich Kruger, uh, I think, uh, came out and just said, uh, "Nope, we're done. We've been focusing too much on the energy transition. We're gonna we're gonna go back to our knitting, which is you know producing oil and gas at a, the lowest cost possible." What are we to make of that? You know, this retrenchment. Yeah, that's uh, Markham. I think you hit it right on the head. There, the writing is on the wall. The future looks different, uh, and and we are retracting in in many ways in the fossil fuel industry. I am disappointed, uh, but I'm also not surprised. Um, I'm disappointed because I think the fossil fuel industry can and should be a leader at the forefront of this transition. Uh, as you mentioned, Suncor was proving to be that beacon in Canada. And, and frankly, I would much rather have them as an ally than an adversary. The fossil fuel industry is a major player in Canada's economy, uh, a major employer uh, across the country, and, and we should support them. We should we should entice them to play a positive role in accelerating uh, the low carbon transition in line with our current climate commitments. But what we've seen instead during this period of higher returns is, is this retreat away from, from playing this leadership role to an old model, which I think is driven primarily by shareholder primacy, right? It's Suncor, it's Shell doubling down on what they do, and that is fossil fuel production. So why am I not surprised? Uh, and we, I think we just need to see who has influence over the industry. And, and that's exactly what our research of Voice for Change does. Uh, can shareholders be a voice for change, a positive influence urging the industry to play this enabling role in the low carbon transition. Uh, and, and I think we're actually seeing the opposite. We, we find highly concentrated ownership in Canada's fossil fuel industry, just 14 owners collectively, the majority of which are foreign and corporate interests. Well, let's, we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, what we've seen with, we've seen shareholder activism inside other 
you know, super majors like Exxon Mobil and, and others. It hasn't been particularly effective, uh, but we see little to no shareholder activism around climate and transition issues in Canada. It just isn't, the, it just, it doesn't exist. Uh, do you have any insights into why that is? Well, that's exactly it. Uh, we are seeing uh, a, a lack of action uh, nationally. And I think a part of it is because many of our shareholders, uh, many of the largest shareholders in, in Canada's fossil fuel industry are actually foreign owners or, or corporate interests. We're, we're looking at um, Exxon, who owns a sizable portion of Imperial. We're looking at the, the Black Rocks and Fidelities of the world who own sizable portions of, of Suncor. Uh, these are the actors with, with power to influence the industry in, in, in their favor. Um, there have been uh, steps taken, uh, Climate Engagement Canada and Climate Action 100. The fact of the matter is uh, we can't have meaningful action without having these sizable, significant block holders also uh, on board. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so are these, yeah, okay, so ExxonMobil owns 67% of Imperial oil and the rest is owned uh, by uh, by others in the yeah, other players. And we know that there are big institutional investors that are invested in the other big companies like Synovus and Suncor and CNRL. And, and those are those are the big the big four. And then there are probably another 30 or 40 intermediate oil and gas companies. And then there are a number, but a much smaller number of juniors than there, there used to be. And I think the junior sector, aside from a few innovative companies, uh, is is done as a force in the in the oil patch. It's going to be mainly the intermediates. And I wouldn't be surprised as later in this decade to see a big consolidation of that where the the, the majors pick up more of the intermediates that are floundering uh, you know, as as market volatility and maybe even lower prices uh, affect their ability to stay afloat. Okay, so is this different? Is is the ownership of say the American uh, oil and gas companies or the UK uh, companies is it different? Do you have maybe smaller shareholders in these other markets? Uh, you don't have the concentration in uh, in institutional investors. Is that what? It maybe makes a difference. No, in fact, I, I think we're actually seeing this concentration of power across the fossil fuel industry. We had a similar study that was put out uh, a few years ago that looked at the uh, 200 largest fossil fuel companies around the world, the Carbon Underground 200. And what we found out of that study there was 10 financial actors, and again, these are the Black Rocks, Fidelities, capital groups of the world, uh, own half of the emissions potential of the fossil fuel industry. And so they have this immense potential um, to, to not only drive the uh, future of the, the fossil fuel industry in, in Canada, but, but uh, the industry across the world. Now, okay, so this is fascinating because, and I understand why they would do that. So if we took, you know, climate considerations out, uh, of our uh, of this discussion, uh, you know there are uh, consultancies like uh, Wood McKenzie, for instance. That's one that comes to mind. Uh, they've done work on this, and they say, look, uh, if peak if oil if peak oil demand is going to incur, let's say twenty thirty, hypothetically, uh, then basically these companies have got seven or eight more years where they're likely to have high uh, high prices, uh, high profits, lots of cash flow. 
And Wood McKenzie is saying to its oil and gas companies, now is the time to strengthen your balance sheet so you can ride out volatility uh, in a, a better. And also now is the time to start building low carbon business models because you know these are huge companies, huge companies, and they just don't turn on a dime. They literally are the metaphorical oil tanker, right? And they take a long time to turn. If you do it now, you've got a fighting chance. If you wait until you know peak oil demand or you're on the decline curve and prices are low and you're under pressure, then that's a problem. But so I can see why the institutional investors are piling into these companies because they're looking ahead and going, hey, seven years of profit. And they know that these companies are having trouble gaining access to capital. So they use that as leverage on the executive teams to return lots and lots of that free cash flow to the investors, right? I mean, it's great. It's it's a it's a windfall in a way for these in, in institutional investors. The problem is many of them, like BlackRock, has set itself up as a leader in climate finance. And you know, Larry Fink is running around the the globe talking about how we need, you know, finance needs to lead the way in the energy transition. And then they're doing this on the, you know, sort of behind the scenes, much more quietly. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, Mark, I think you hit it on the head again, right? It's this uh, issue of short-term versus long-term priorities of institutional interests, uh, financial interests, and and uh, climate interests. Uh, in fact, in this paper, we posited that in many ways we we don't believe that these large uh, investors will use their voice to. Uh, enable change, at least in the short term, because of this misalignment, right, in the short term shareholder interests and long term targets, specifically around this idea of, of free cash flow that we've seen uh, in, in the last year or so, and I presume we'll continue to see uh, calls uh, by shareholders uh, for share buybacks, debt repayments actually fits quite quite nicely into this argument of shareholder primacy, right, that these shareholders are influencing the industry in a manner that benefits them and their short-term interests uh, over the long-term sustainability, not only of uh, of the planet, but of the company itself. And I think a couple of weeks ago, Max Fawcett put it quite well, is these decisions are good for shareholders, but, but which shareholders? Today's shareholders or tomorrow's? So reverting back to this old model of fossil fuel production, um, you know, debt repayments, share buybacks, using these free uh, cash flows to bolster shareholder returns is bad for the organization long-term and at odds with where the world is going. A little bit of context here, because in June of 2020, uh, Mark Little, who was then CEO of Suncor, and Laura Kilcrease, who is still the CEO of Alberta Innovates, the provincial uh, innovation agency, that's doing a lot of work on beyond combustion, bitumen beyond combustion, and other sort of future uses of Alberta hydrocarbons. They wrote this op-ed in the Corporate Nights magazine, and they made the argument that, in fact, the oil uh, oil sands companies, uh, because of the financial clout that they have, because of their size and their ability to to uh, in not only invest in clean tech companies, but also to provide a market, an emerging market for clean tech companies, they were going to lead the energy transition in Canada. And little has been summarily bounced out of, out of uh, his role as CEO at Suncor last year. And that seems to have been the high tide of, you know, the oil sands companies thinking that they might have play a role in the energy transition. And they have just now completely retreated from that. And yet at the same time, and this is really interesting, the narrative is still there. 
the Pathways Alliance, which is the lobby organization for the oil sands companies, still talks about this. And it, it gets back again and again to how the industry is so good at managing narrative. They create narratives, they manage narratives, they promote narratives through advertising and all their little astroturf organizations and so on. Meanwhile, they're doing the exact opposite. They're retrenching. What do you make of that? I couldn't have said, couldn't have said it better myself. That, that's exactly, uh, I think, what we're seeing. We're seeing uh, the, on, uh, on the front end uh, this narrative that they are on board. They are here to uh, support the transition, yet all their actions speak otherwise. Well, in your paper, you talk about the high debt load of fixed assets that make Canadian fossil fuel firms particularly sensitive to shareholder intervention. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so maybe I'll uh, start with a bit of bit of context and then <laughs> get into it. So it might be a bit of a longer answer, but a, a quick point of clarification around the method specifically. There were two parts of this study. The first part was looking at who the major shareholders are, right, based on the size of their uh, ownership, and then the second part was to understand how influential these shareholders could be based on what we call these sensitivity measures. And the sensitivity measures uh, actually builds off work by Victor Galaz at the Stockholm Resilience Center. Uh, and he poses that uh, there, there are two main measures here, the Herfindel-Hirschman index, it's a measure of market concentration, collective block holding power, and then the debt to capital ratio. So when we talk about how sensitive a firm is, we're actually looking at various factors here. We're looking at the size of ownership. We're looking at network dynamics, emissions potential, the Herfindel-Hirschman, the debt to capital. So all of those sort of coming uh, to, to play. But beyond that technicality, um, why does the, the debt load specifically matter? Um, we know that there are significant infrastructure costs associated with oil sands production. We, we find in our study that debt loads are actually uh, double the industry average uh, here in Canada. And of course, that should not come to, to much of a surprise. Uh, and, and we actually posited that financiers would want to see the significant infrastructure investments utilized to the end of their useful lives. So there's this intrinsic motivation for the industry, for the shareholders to maintain favorable market conditions, to maintain status quo, and mitigate against climate-related financial risks of potentially stranded infrastructure assets. And this is the misalignment between shareholder interests and climate stability. Shareholders, as you mentioned, are increasingly acknowledging climate risks, aware of climate risks, yet they, I think, will remain unlikely to meaningfully intervene with corporate strategy in a way that would curb emissions, production, or future profitability. I want to bring up something here that I'm writing a column about, and so it's kind of top of mind for me, and that is the incumbency dilemma. So if you're, and this I think applies to, you know, other industries other than oil and gas, but I think it's particularly acute in the Canadian oil and gas industry, and it kind of goes like this. So if you have, let's say you're, you know, the Synovus Imperial Oil and so on, and now your industry has been disrupted. And it's not like it's being disrupted. It's been disrupted for a while because they've had problems gaining, you know, the, the energy transition has introduced uncertainty. Uncertainty brings risk premiums and they either have tr trouble getting capital. I interviewed Donnie Bobasell, who's now in hydrogen, veteran oil guy in out of Calgary. And he said, look, Small teams like us, we can't get capital. Nobody will give us capital. We'll invest in our projects. And so we have to make a pivot into, into hydrogen and you know, other forms of energy. And, I, and so the big companies uh, can still get capital, but it costs them more. And they have to make more concessions to investors, to shareholders to get that capital. So 
when they're an when they're an incumbent and they exercise the kind of market power they do and and they have the kind of political influence policy influence that they do when you're disrupted and you don't have a pivot so you look at automakers automakers if you're gm and ford tesla's disrupted your your industry followed by the chinese who are now you know expanding at an exponential rate in ev production and moving into other markets like europe so your industry's been disrupted but you can look at that and go okay you know an ev is it's got an electric uh, propulsion propulsion system it's got a battery it's got power electronics it's got it's not just like our existing automobiles but it's still an automobile and we can figure that other stuff out and so they've been able to make a pivot from internal combustion engine powered vehicles to electric powered vehicles they've been but that pivot is not available to canadian oil and gas companies like what's what's the obvious pivot if you're making extracting bitumen in the oil sands or if you're you know extracting uh you know like conventional oil in the western canadian sedimentary basin there just isn't one and i think for a while those ceos thought there might be one but it's become apparent that there isn't one and so the only option available to them is to is to double down on the status quo and just get better at what they do. So, you know, lay off staff, cut costs, adopt new technologies like digital technologies, uh, AI and what have you to become more efficient. And then that fits into this retrenchment trend that we're seeing is because there just are no alternatives that they can that the market is offering them. And that changes their strategy. Is that a reasonable hypothesis? I, I think it's fa fascinating to hear you talk about that because uh, a few years ago, while I was still working on the fossil fuel divestment side of uh, the equation here, uh, we, we had this conversation, right? If we look at something like anti-apartheid divestment, Coca-Cola could just leave South Africa and that would have taken care of that. What is the alternative for, for a fossil fuel firm who... Uh, is is facing uh, large asset managers divesting away from them. They they simply can't step away from uh, their 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 uh, bread and butter. There, I'm concerned about uh, about the future of that. It's you can double down. Yes, that is that is a business strategy. Um, but what does that look like uh, into the future? Not only for the sustainability of the planet, but sustainability of the organization of uh, the industry, of, of Canadians, of, of our, our country as a whole. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. And uh, this is not the conversation we're, we're having, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> well, let's talk about the policy changes required to curtail oil and gas uh, GHG emissions. And this is a big issue in Alberta, of course, the provincial government led by uh, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith is is telling the federal government, which is wanting to bring in an oil and gas emissions cap this fall, telling the government, no, we won't allow it in Alberta. And so there's going to be a big jurisdictional fight, constitutional fight over whether or not the, the, the federal government, my money's on the federal government. I, I think this has already been determined by the Supreme Court and uh, it won't take long to, to sort it out. But what kind of policy changes then in the absence of shareholder direction to the man, the executive team to lower emissions and to develop low carbon business uh, models, what policy changes are required? 
Yeah, that is uh, that is the million dollar question. I, I think uh, you know maybe I'll start by saying I, I think in many ways Canada's climate policies are, are actually quite progressive. The the concern here is that we we don't want external influences hampering those ambitions, right? So we need policies that fundamentally disincentivize opportunities for foreign owners to profit off Canada's failure to meet our global uh, commitments. Uh, we can't let the fossil fuel industry revert uh, simply because shareholders want to prioritize short-term profits over, over our long-term interests. Uh, the complexity obviously arises from this idea of, of foreign ownership. Uh, but what can we do, I, I think, is uh, put, put more emphasis on supply side policies, right, as greater regulations on the industry specifically. So a few uh, pieces that come to mind would be uh, mandated transition plans for Canada's fossil fuel firms. You mentioned emissions caps, uh, subsidy reforms beyond our current efforts, um, suspensions on, I think, uh, an important one would be suspensions on share buybacks um, until liabilities like orphan when wells and, and tailing ponds are, are paid off. Uh, reductions um, or eliminations of, of tax benefits, bridge loans, public financing, uh, again, to, to firms who are paying dividends uh, and, and conducting share buybacks. So if I had to stress just one sort of policy uh, focus out of the many that, that we can and should use, it would be supply side policies that sort of disincentivize the, the misalignment. Yeah, that's a, you've raised a very good question, and that is environmental liability. So here, we, here these uh, companies are, doubling down on the status quo they're returning 75 like if you look at the uh, the oil sands companies investor presentations they're promising at least 75 percent of free cash flow back to in investors where they are and then it, the other available capital is being put into emissions reductions uh because they know that that climate policies are going to be more, more and more stringent over time they just they know that and they and one thing i will say about these companies is that they are they put a lot of emphasis on being regulatory compliant so if you have the regulations in they will comply with them but you have to you have to put them in now here's the problem so on the conventional side and there are no firm numbers on this these are estimates uh the best we can come up with but on the conventional oil and gas side environmental liabilities are probably in the order of 120 to 150 billion dollars on the oil sand side, they're probably in the same range. The problem is that the uh, the disturbance of the ecosystem in northern Alberta, it's 900 square, uh, uh, I think it's hectares at, at this point, is so massive, there has never been a reclamation of this size attempted anywhere on the planet. So we don't know what it's going to cost. When we say 120 billion or 150 billion, we don't, you know, those 37 tailings ponds up there, we don't really know uh, with any precision. And so, given you know the fact that most big projects run over over budget, it's probably it's probably more than that. So, if these companies are prioritizing shareholders over their environmental liabilities, never mind emissions, never mind emissions, environmental liabilities, and they and we allow them to ride the market down to the bottom. And then eventually fail. Where, when are they going to uh, put aside cash to remediate those environmental liabilities? Well, the odds there is no indication whatsoever that they plan to do that. None whatsoever. And we can get into you know discussions of the mine financial security program for the oil sands that's got 
you know, hasn't had a dollar put into it since 2014, you know, that kind of stuff. There are, this is a a huge issue for Alberta and for Canada as a, as a rule, not just on the emission side. I, I, I think you, you hit it on the head there. It's uh, liabilities are this uh, unspoken, um, ticking time bomb in many ways uh, that, that the industry uh, hasn't addressed, but I, I agree with you entirely. Uh, they, they are regulatory compliant and, and with the right regulations, um, they will act on it. However, if they act on it, uh, shareholders will, will also be paying for that. Yes. And, and, and shareholders may not be happy and there may be implications there, but, but one of the things I want to bring up in, during our discussion of policy is constitutional jurisdiction in Canada, because the provincial government by and large has jurisdiction over resources which include oil and oil and gas and the current provincial government the united conservative party has made it so abundantly clear that they do not want to move in that direction they and they're actively resisting it they will only cooperate to the extent that they're basically forced at the point of a gun uh, you know, to to cooperate and put in place those policies. The federal government has li- more limited uh, authorities here, uh, and that makes this that makes this very difficult, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think we're going to have to work with all stakeholders, uh, different provinces, different types of citizens, different interests, um, and and find amicable but but, but ambitious uh, goals that that sort of meet the needs of Canadians but also meet our global global commitments are you then arguing for a strong civil society response uh to put pressure on governments and and the companies to comply I would uh say that we need all all actors on board that includes civil society that includes the shareholders uh the industries and and governments uh and uh, it, it wouldn't just be the Canadian government's uh, policies that influence the, the future of the Canadian oil sands. It's also international uh, uh, sort of international movements uh, towards a low carbon transition that will also affect what the future of oil sands look like here in Canada. Well, this is going to be a fascinating conversation going forward, and it'll be interesting uh, how that conversation develops. But more importantly, even if there is a conversation, because one of the points I've made over and over in columns about uh, the oil and gas narrative management is the one of the purposes of the narrative management in this industry is is to dampen, is to is to make sure that these kind of conversations just don't take place and that we're arguing over stupid things like you know is the federal government trying to phase out oil and gas or is it trying to you know kill some it, we we get we get deliberately distracted and sidetracked from the real substantive issues by the by the way that the the, the narrative is managed out of the industry and its and its supporters and and then we we don't have the conversations that we really need to have and, until it's almost until it's too late and it, it looks like we're going down that path again. Well, Truzar, thank you very much for this. This has been a fascinating conversation, and uh, we'll keep reading your work and look forward to having you back. Yeah, thanks so much, Marco. It was uh, my pleasure. I'll see you soon.